So when some of us go march on Martin Luther King Day, the march in Selma is present in that event. And when the New England Patriots get accused of cheating by deflating the footballs, sports fans are thinking about how they already got busted once before. And that affects the way that is viewed. Past events live on. Then that is the reason why it matters what we do in the world, because the effects will live on and influence us in the present. With that truth in mind, some of us have been watching this very provocative series of DVDs on UU history for the last six weeks and learning all kinds of things we didn't know before, like that Clinton Lee Scott founded the Church of the Larger Fellowship. Does any of this old stuff matter? Well, I think it does, because all of these old events live on in the present, and they are at this moment influencing us in being here today. My colleague, Reverend Linda White, spoke a few weeks ago about Reverend Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, a great Unitarian who traveled across the, this part of the world in the late 1800s and created Unitarian churches all over the place. And those Unitarian churches owe their existence to his work, at least in part. I think Linda would say that he's a model for us in many ways. We'll ask her in coffee hour if she agrees with that. So today, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about some of these old universalists. And I'm going to focus on basically uh, the early 1800s up to the Civil War. Our church was created during that time period. 1843. So we are part of that wave of universalism that took place from the late 1700s up to about the Civil War period. Great expansion of a particular point of view called universalism. And so this is our history. And I'm going to try to tell you why I think it matters to us. What part of it lives on today? The universalists, and you know, in order to talk about this, we have to just kind of see if we can be in the mindset of this older period of time, which means that most religious dialogue is taking place around Christianity. And it mostly consists of different ways of interpreting Christianity. So for the most part, people don't have a Buddhist meditation group, or they don't have a humanist you know, discussion group after church. Most of this dialogue is different ways of understanding Christianity. So let's see if we can go into that space for a little while and see what's going on there. The Universalists put together a particular version of understanding, and it was based on one central idea. That central idea was that if 
God was a loving God, he could not possibly send his children to hell for infinity, forever and ever and ever. And the Universalists used all kinds of arguments to support this. But just think about that for a minute. I mean, think of Hosea Ballou and his father coming home muddy all the time and getting all the other kids' clothes muddy and doing it over and over again and he asking his father, do you still love me? And the father said, yeah, I'm going to love you no matter what you do. And so you can sort of see his young mind thinking this over about the relationship between love and punishment is one way of looking at it. And so the universalist said, how could a heavenly being who has infinite love put all these people into what is, was known as a form of torture forever and ever and ever with no way out ever, no, no uh, personal growth workshops, you know, no counseling, no opportunity to have a change of heart, no opportunity to, you know, uh, grow spiritually beyond what you were before. There's no time off for good behavior. There's no parole board. It's just you're in what was called conscious torment, torment forever. And the Universalist said, we don't think that makes sense. We don't accept that. That's not, it's not even rational. So, uh, I want to go through some of the other arguments that they made, just so you'll kind of see how this works. And again, you have to kind of enter into this world and accept this world for what it was and then see how the arguments worked in that context. So the number one argument was this contradiction between love and eternal punishment as being something that couldn't possibly exist. Another classic universalist argument that was made by Hosea Ballou was that if in the sin of Adam and Eve, everyone got condemned, which was the theology of the time, and I'm sure you've heard this story, if that one disobedience of Adam condemned everyone to hell, then it must be equally true that what Jesus did to save humanity saved everybody as well. That's the only way that you can have balance between those two things. So if everybody's condemned with Adam, then everyone is saved with Jesus. Another universalist argument that said that's the only way to make that a logical relationship. That we're saved regardless of our belief or our choice or our worldview. That would be the universalist uh, point of view. I always think about Diane and I going to this restaurant in New Mexico, and uh, there was a hill. It's not unlike today. It was snowy, and there was a hill. And there was a family there that was trying to get up that hill, and they could not get up the hill. And they're gunning their engine, and they tried a number of things to try to get up this hill. And Diane, who grew up in Michigan, where a couple feet of snow is pretty common, at one point said, can I give it a try? So Diane gets in the, in the truck and drives up the hill. So you can congratulate her for that after church. And then we, we just went to dinner and didn't think about it that much. And when we got done with dinner and it was time to pay, the 
the wait person said, it's already been paid. And, we, you know, they paid our dinner. They didn't ask us whether we wanted them to do that. And it didn't matter whether we believed in that or not. You know, we could believe it or not, but as far as the restaurant was concerned, it, it was paid. And I've always thought of that as kind of similar to this universalist point of view. It's paid. The bill is paid. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's just the bill is paid. All right. Next argument. When we sentence people to punishment, don't we always say that the punishment should fit the crime? There should be proportionality between the punishment and the crime. So the universalist argued, what could a finite human being possibly do that would merit an infinite punishment? Here we are, little bitty creatures on earth, little specks, kind of. You know, we're not that important. We're, we're small, finite beings. So the universalist said, that is, these small, little, finite beings, we cannot possibly do anything horrible enough that would merit punishment for all infinity. It, it doesn't fit the crime. So that's another universalist argument. Could that possibly be proportional? Could it be fair? The old universalist said no, it could not be. Hosea Ballou also argued, based on studying the Bible, that every time that God punishes someone in the Bible, he does it right now on earth in a finite way. He does something, you know, he wipes out a city or sends a plague or takes away somebody's ox. That all the punishments are immediate, they're on earth and they're done. And then usually there's a reconciliation that happens after that. So Hosea Ballou argued that if you look in the Bible, Punishment is specific and finite. And therefore, the Bible does not support the idea that punishment by God is delayed until after death, nor does it support the idea that it's infinite. Universalists also argued that to be meaningful, punishment should be remedial. It should lead to improvement. So if we give someone a timeout, for 15 minutes, the idea is that that's going to be a learning experience and that whoever it is is going to be a better person, at least eventually. Even our prison system, although it doesn't really happen very often, is based on the idea that there should be rehabilitation, although there's this huge difference in philosophy about prisons. You know, should they be rehabilitation or just punitive? But the universalists argue that if punishment is to make sense, it needs to be remedial. It needs to be rehabilitation. And that to have an infinite punishment where there's no meaningful hope of rehabilitation does not make sense. It's not moral sense, and we would not consider uh, a parent or a loving being to be moral if they, did, if they took that action. Another universalist argument was that if you believe in a powerful God, you would think that eventually God would win. And God says in the Bible many, many times that uh, 
he, I, I'm using he all the way because in this story, it is a male God, so that's why I'm saying he. Um, God says many times in the Bible that he wants to save everyone. And so the universalist said, well, does that mean he's going to be a failure? That's a pessimistic view of life. So the universalist had an optimistic view that this enterprise that God wants to do would be successful and that eventually it would happen. And if you don't think that's true, then you think God is going to be a failure and Jesus is going to be a failure too because they set out to save humanity. And if you take the orthodox view, that fails. It doesn't work because huge amounts of humanity do not get saved. Another universalist argument. All right. On the other side of the coin, the traditionalists had their own arguments. And one of the arguments that they used is that without hell, the whole system would fall apart. And there would be chaos. And people would do just all kinds of horrible things. They would go out and pillage and steal and... And, and anything that just passed through their minds. One uh, universalist said that, uh, one of the conservatives rather said that universalism would eventually lead to atheism. And there might be some truth in that for some folks. Another universalist said, universalism would encourage societal menaces ranging from drunkards to whoremongers and adulterers and murderers. So the idea was that if there wasn't that threat of hell, then society would basically fall apart. So we do know that hell in a way was a form of social control that worked. One of the uh, famous universalists was John Murray, who is really considered the founder of universalism in America. uh, if you've ever come to the New UU or any of those courses, we tell the story of John Murray. What I found out recently from, from research is that there were two John Murrays at this time in history. One of them was the founder of universalism, and the other one was one of the arch conservatives. And they argued with each other. They were almost exactly the same age, and they argued with it one another. And the John Murray, who we count as the founder of universalism, was called Salvation Murray. And the other one was called Damnation Murray. So were these arguments between salvation and damnation that went on for a long time. After the death of Hosea Ballou in 1855 and the Civil War, universalism began to decline in the United States. Although not in our church, our church reached its zenith of membership in the 1920s at around 1,000 members, but nationwide universalism declined. So why did that happen? Why did universalism decline? Uh, My seminary professor, the late Dr. John Godby, a wonderful person and a noteworthy scholar, who Diane and I knew quite well and at this very moment just wish he was still around. Dr. Godby said that the universalist movement declined because it won the argument. That was his line. Because the universalists won the argument, they declined as a religious movement. In other words, what he means is that the belief in hell decreased after that time, at least in the mainline churches, and so you really didn't need a a special church to be universalist. In the program that we just took, 
on Thursday nights, Ron Cordes, who is the narrator, argues that one of the reasons universalism declined is because it lacked a strong central movement to hold the churches together. Didn't have a good denominational uh, organization and that that was part of what contributed to its decline. So that's something for us to think about when we consider each year our support of our denomination, the Unitarian Universalist Association. These groups do matter. All right, I know that for some of you, all these arguments about God and heaven and hell and finite and infinite may not seem relevant to your life. Sometimes, for some people who come to this church, those arguments are very relevant, especially depending upon how we might have been brought up or family ties and people we know who believe in some of these things. But I know that for some of us, it's not this supernatural drama of heaven and hell may not feel like what is most important in our personal lives. So here's what I want to do for just a minute. I want to see if we can translate these supernatural arguments into more present day arguments that do not make reference to either God or heaven or hell. And take all those elements out of it. And I want to try to see if we can restate the universalist positions in ways that do not refer to those. So I'm going to give it a try. I think the old arguments could be translated into new arguments like this. Number one, love is the supreme human value. Love is the best course of action to follow. And love is the guide to human life. I think that would be the first one. Or as the poem says, love is the only magic. Love is the guide. Here's another one. Love does not torture. Torture is not part of the realm of love. It's not a tool of love. Torture is an aspect of human life that we need to leave behind. It's something that we need to grow beyond, all of us, all over the planet. Number three, any punishment that we human beings administer should be humane, proportional, and should lead towards rehabilitation and growth, not just towards pain and suffering. It should lead to a betterment for everyone. Fourth, no one is beyond hope, and no person or group is to be excluded from the human family because of any category they may belong to. Everyone has a seat at the welcome table. So there's no group that we can wipe off the list of who's meaningful in humanity. Not, not Jewish people, not Muslims, not gay people, not women, not pagans, not anybody. There isn't anyone that we can just disregard and say that they have no value because everyone has value. This, by the way, does not mean that all behavior 
is acceptable. It's not the same thing at all. Behavior will always have limits. Those behavior limits have to be uh, implemented without regard to people's categories, whether they happen to be young or old or, you know, Jewish or Hindu. There's behavior limits, but no one can be cut out of the human family because they belong to some despised category. Fifth, the great goal of life, which metaphorically is thought of as heaven, or perhaps could be called paradise, is to be pursued on this earth in an all-inclusive and just earthly community where everyone has a place and everyone has full rights. In other words, so the place to find that unity and that supreme quality of life is on this earth. And I would add one more, that we are an optimistic faith. We believe that this quality of justice and peace are possible and that it will come one day. And you know, this idea is echoed in that Martin Luther King idea of the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice. See, that's a kind of optimistic, universalist kind of faith that it will come. It will come. Just like the old universalist said, you know, eventually everybody will go to heaven. Well, that's, that's a kind of symbolic or metaphorical way of saying that. But we're saying everyone eventually will be brothers and sisters in a great community. And that we, we have faith that that will come. That's an optimism that we have. So this is just a beginning of how we might do such a translation from 19th century language into 21st century language. And to say that those old universalists were completely off track because they had a 19th century worldview and they believed in a certain kind of mythical system, if we think that that's all that they had to say, then I think we really miss the, the breadth and the genius because by presenting their worldview within the language of their time, they presented a radical theology of inclusiveness and love that is part of why we are here today and it's part of why we have a theology of radical inclusiveness and love because they started that path. Our goals and aspirations grew out of their interpretation of the theological framework they lived in. They spoke in their language, but language can always be translated. The theology of love that they helped to create and refine, when it's combined with the Unitarian theology of freedom, of belief, and the use of reason and science, which was developed strongly on our Unitarian side, when you combine those two, it creates a very rich tradition that can feed our search and help us shape the world. And I would add, as one more argument for universalism, that the view of inclusiveness that it presents and the view of everyone having value is a 
system that is more likely to lead to peace on earth than a system that believes that ultimately humans will be split into two groups where one will get everything and one will get nothing. I believe that those theological ideas shape the way we look at the present moment. And if we look at the, at the, the idea that everyone will eventually be included, I think we are called to act in a more loving and inclusive way in the present moment. I'm, I feel strongly that that effect exists. The theology that says love is the most important thing does not have to be attached to God language. It does fine without that language, and it does fine with that language too. It actually works either way. And so it's our personal choice how we look at that. But either way, love is the path that leads us where we want to go and how we want to live. And as the old story promised, love will eventually win. Love will carry the day. It may be a long road, but love will win. And love's road is always the best place to be.